0: Welcome to Triple Take, the podcast where we talk to interesting people about the books, films, and albums that shaped them. I'm Carla Jean Whitley.
1: I'm Edward Bowser. And I'm John Hammondry. And we are here today with my friend Victor Luckerson, a reporter who's been with Sports Illustrated, Time, and is now currently with Bill Simmons' new venture, The Ringer. Uh, Victor, can you tell us a little bit about what you're going to be covering there?
2: Sure. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, so the Ringer is, if you're familiar with Grantland, it was a sports and pop culture website uh, for about four years that I personally loved this as a fan. And the Ringer is sort of picking up the mantle where Grantland left off, but also adding uh, technology. as another big section of coverage. Mm-hmm. So I'll be writing about uh, both technology and culture for them. Actually, I started about two weeks ago. So. Yeah, that's awesome.
1: Uh, what have you written about so far?
2: Uh, probably the biggest thing I wrote was about uh, Spotify and sort of they've lost out on a lot of major albums this year, or like the launch of a lot of major albums from uh, Drake to Kanye West, uh, Chance the Rapper, or Radiohead. So I was writing about how they're using uh, smart algorithms to make really good discovery products for their users. Uh, Discover Weekly is a really popular Spotify product where you get uh, 30 songs every week that you probably haven't heard but that you might like.
1: Yeah. I did a big
2: feature where I went to the office, their Spotify office in New York, and talked to the Uh, some of the engineers involved in the recommendation products. And the story is sort of about how they're trying to use those almost like in place of these very major albums from very important artists.
1: And then here for our local audience, uh, you grew up here in Alabama. Uh, You went to LAMP in Montgomery and then the University of Alabama where you were the editor of The Crimson White for for two years, right?
2: Yes, I am a Bama boy. I've only lived in Alabama and New York City, actually, so two pretty extreme contrasts. Yeah,
1: definitely. And you were there during the uh, the tornado coverage.
2: Yeah, I was the editor of the Crimson White in April 2011 uh, during the tornado that devastated Tuscaloosa. So that was a huge learning experience. I mean, I've been a professional journalist for four years now, but that was still definitely like the biggest thing I've ever covered, and sort of the most formative journal- journalistic experience I've had for sure.
1: Well, we're excited to talk to you today about your favorite uh, album, your favorite novel, and then. For a change of pace, uh, it sounds like we're going to talk about your favorite TV show rather than your favorite film. Can you give me a quick rundown of what those are?
2: Sure. The favorite TV show is uh, Chappelle's Show. The favorite book is uh, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And the favorite album is A.T. Alien by Outcast. Start the show. So I'm
1: excited to talk about the Chappelle Show. Uh, normally we have guests come on and talk about their favorite movie, but when you mentioned that the Chappelle Show was what you wanted to talk about, I jumped at the chance because uh, you and I are both about the same age. So we were in junior high school when Chappelle Show first aired. Did you watch it uh, when it was airing?
2: Yeah, I did. I don't remember exactly when I first heard about it, but it would have been sometime during the first season. So I watched a lot of those episodes, like. I believe it was Wednesday nights after South Park is when it came on. So I watched yep. a lot of those. And the nights they, they debuted for sure.
1: Can you tell me why it had such a big impact on your life?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I guess I was I was in thirteen or fourteen. I guess when I was watching that show, and his entire tone was just very striking to me. It was very irreverent, and the way he sort of like approached racial issues, um, often from like a point of almost like absurdity, which was really funny to me. Um, I'm thinking in particular about a skit like Black Bush, where he's sort of uh, mocking the Bush presidency, um, but everything he's saying is sort of from this stereotypical black perspective. So he's also sort of mocking the way that the media portrays black people, or maybe like black people are seen by the broader society. So he's kind of making fun of both George Bush and Black Portrayals on television at the same time.
1: And it's uh, interesting that, like, Key and Peel attempted to do the same basic thing with the uh, Obama interpreter, but it doesn't mm-hmm. land quite as uh, strong as as Black Bush does.
2: Uh, I'm such a Chappelle Show nerd that I have the DVDs and listen to, like, the director's commentary and all that. Um, and on that, they said they actually like went back and looked at a lot of actual press conference footage of George W. Bush. And so a lot of those. Beats are sort of taken from his actual uh, speeches from the time period. So then that's sort of why it's like a very um, sort of accurate to his policies in a lot of ways, which makes it even funnier.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, what are your other favorite sketches?
2: I love the Wayne Brady sketch just because that was a really good uh, mocking of Wayne, again, sort of like mocking of the way people perceive Wayne Brady and then sort of taking it to a the opposite extreme where obviously Wayne Brady exists somewhere between those two extremes. Um, so I mean, I think that was a hilarious sketch. Yeah, I think and, that was, like,
1: one of the most quoted sketches, uh, at least of my childhood. Everybody yeah. had seen the Wayne Brady sketch.
2: Right. It was just so, like, over the top to see somebody like that who was so clean cut. It uh, was like that, and Prince,
1: in. and those were the those were the ones everybody quoted all the time.
2: Right, right. Yeah, definitely, like, I kind of preferred, I mean, Prince and the like James skits are both, uh, both be similar in tone and structure. But the Prince one is just a little bit more absurd, with Prince like serving pancakes, and he like floats in midair at one point after a dunk. It's just a lot more ridiculous. <laughs> right. so, like, I think I prefer that one. Um,
1: so I, I have a question. Uh, do you think that one of the unexpected consequences of like this brilliant subversive show that had sketches like you know uh, Law and Order if the if the roles were reversed? Black Bush, Clayton Bigsby, sorry, let me say that again, Clayton Bigsby, and others is that it led to a bunch of um, middle-class white kids like myself in middle school that uh, were repeating racial slurs and quotes over and over and over without necessarily digesting the point of the sketches?
2: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that was probably an unintended consequence, and you know, obviously, there's only two official seasons of Shepo's show because they famously quit the show after that, even though they could have made $50 million to do two more seasons. Yep. And, I mean, even then, I remember at the time, I would have been out when I was, like, 15, I guess, I didn't really quite understand what was happening because the media portrayed him as being crazy and, like, how could anyone give this up? But sort of, like, when you look back in retrospect, it's easy to see how he could have been very frustrated that he was almost doing this, like, media critique or sort of critique of, perceptive perceptions of blacks, but then a lot of the jokes are just being taken as on their faces.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was just, he was doing something so raw, and it, like, I wasn't the target audience, and yet I consumed it voraciously. Like, I loved it. But I, I was watching um, the Law and Order segment last night, and I just remember quoting all the time, like, the one, two, three, four, fifth, and all that stuff, but I didn't necessarily, you know, get that the at the time, uh, or maybe I did, and I just forget, gotten but like that it was about how the criminal justice system teaches treats white and black people differently and so it's like a whole generation of people grew up watching the show and i guess some of us internalized it differently than others
2: yeah definitely um there were definitely like different audiences for the show and i guess once he felt like the honesty intended for had sort of been subsumed by this larger audience he kind of like drop the entire thing in dramatic fashion.
1: Do you think that a show is as raw as Chappelle's uh, could get put on the air today?
2: Um, that's a tough question. I feel like a lot of the raw things or the raw jokes have almost like left TV now. Like if you go on Twitter, you can find like really raw, almost Chappelle-like uh, jokes and racial commentary relatively easily. Mm-hmm. But it seems like maybe on television things are a little bit more neutered. So, I guess maybe because the people who are into that kind of stuff have sort of migrated away from that platform. So, I don't really know whether there'd be that much of a market for it. Or if it was, I think it would have to be marketed maybe a little more like a premium HBO type channel. Um, Like, it's hard to imagine a show like that on basic cable. Yeah, I mean, because I
1: think, like, Blackish and Carmichael show, and I guess they just went off the air, but Key and Peel dealt with some similar issues, but just. Much more toned down and family friendly,
2: right? Definitely. And I think they're rarely as sort of like meta or subversive as uh, Chappelle's show was. So,
1: who's your favorite musical guest beyond Chappelle?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I definitely love the one with uh, Common and Kanye West performing "The Food," which from Common's album B, and they're in some kind of like. That kitchen basically and Chappelle was like chilling in the kitchen too yeah. and the ver- that version was so good that uh, they put it on a common album actually instead of the recorded version so it's a great performance worth looking up on YouTube for anybody.
1: Edward's looking at me because I always light up when I get a chance to talk about Kanye West and it was his first TV <laughs> performance and he killed it. It was awesome.
2: <laughs> no, for sure. It was, it was, it's a great performance.
1: Uh, how did you, the Chappelle show influence you as a writer?
2: I mean, i probably say it made me a braver writer in some ways. Like, I don't know necessarily, like, if I was thinking of it in this way directly at the time, but it sort of presented a way to talk about important racial issues in a very direct way to a really wide audience and not be, sort of a, not be afraid of the repercussions that I might have for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he really spearheaded that mindset in a time period when that wasn't necessarily, like, known that it would be like, lucrative or helpful for you. So I think just that idea of sort of being brave enough to say what you care about, how you want to say it, is something he did really well. That I took that I took away from that watching that show for so long.
1: And then it sounds like you watched it while it was airing live, but you've since gone back and watched the DVDs. Are there certain episodes that you'll I go know, I to again?
2: Like, I think the show's actually like pretty, especially issues, and one is pretty inconsistent. So like, it's not necessarily that I would want to watch all the episodes like all the way through, but yeah. they're like definitely like let's say 25 or 30 sketches on the show that are pretty incredible um at this point though honestly i do i do more of like just like posting the gifts online for jokes like <laughs> right. uh Chappelle dancing as tough daddy like doing the harlem shake that's a great gift um and i really like the one they're just seen in black bush where they're talking about whether we're going to invade iraq for oil and then Chappelle just like knocks <laughs> over a pitcher of water and runs away <laughs> yes That is a great gift when you're like caught in, a, caught in a mistake. You just need to get out. So I use that one a lot. So I really I like, I basically internalized the whole show. So I use it. I I more like use the gifts now to make jokes versus like watching it that often.
1: And if he were having the uh, racial draft today, do you think anybody would want Tiger Woods at this point? <laughs>
2: Oh, my God, no, I don't think he could, uh, he would not make it. He'd have to be a a free agent, I guess.
1: We were trying to think about it today. I think, like, white people might claim the white half of Barack Obama. (laughs) uh, So we could have the uninterrupted stream of white presidents, I guess. (laughs) Uh, Well, it was a pleasure chatting with you. I'm going to turn you over to my uh, friend Edward now. Uh, I'm really excited to listen to you guys talk about Elliott. All right, great.
2: Thanks, Sean. (laughs)
3: Victor, it's so good to sit down and chat with you because I just stalked you on Twitter while you were chatting with my man, Tree, and I was like, why am I not already friends with this guy? (laughs) But today we're here... Yes. Today we're here to talk about your favorite OutKast album, which is AT Aliens. And I've been looking forward to this because it helps me go into one of the greatest debates in hip-hop history... AT Aliens versus Aquemini. Dude,
2: that is an intense debate that I have with my friends regularly. So.
3: Well, get ready, because we're doing it again. I am an Aquemini <laughs> guy, so tell me, oh, wow. okay. tell me why you think AT Aliens is the better album. Because for me, I love AT Aliens, but of all their albums, it is the least accessible. If a new fan was listening to it, I feel like, they would struggle with it a little bit more than some of their other entries. So, what does it ATL the ATLians bring to the table for you?
2: I guess I want to say first, I definitely agree with the inaccessible thing. Like mm. I remember, I got an Outcast through I guess Mitch Jackson or whatever. But right. the first thing I owned by them was Speakerbox Love Below. I was probably in eighth grade at that time, um, and that kind of went back through their catalogs over the course of high school. And I guess then going the end, that was really fun to, listen to also. And then I got I think I got ATLians next. I was just kind of like this does not sound outcast to me. This is, like, really weird and... Exactly. dense. And I wasn't really that into it, honestly, even in high school. And then, like, in college, I got a little more into it. And basically, as I've gotten older and older, I sort of, slowly climbed up my outcast rankings uh, to now be the favorite. Um, I mean, I guess the main things are, hey, I think it's their best, like, actual rapping, like, bar for bar. Like, of all their albums, they're both at the top of their lyrical game, which is great. And I also just think that the maturity that happens between uh, their debuts so the playlist to kind of like music and any talents just really fascinating and sort of like powerful to observe like they just like impart a lot of wisdom I feel like on that album about how they gonna how they want to raise their children how to be like have integrity as artists even when they're trying to like become more successful um, sort of the tr- the troubles of growing old which is a big like, dealing with their own mortality. I think it's a very like there's a lot of depth to the album that. Uh, makes it a great listen every time.
3: I agree. Even the simplicity of... They, they don't hit you over the head with the messages they're, they're bringing. And they sprinkle it in just very slightly. Because if you listen to Elevators, for example, and Big Boy just throws in that line about how he doesn't eat rallies anymore. And mm-hmm. to someone who isn't in tune, they would think, well, why is he dissing rallies? it It's more of a conversation about how African Americans need to steer toward more healthier diet choices. That's one thing that always stuck out to me about that song. And that's why I love the maturation process that that album showed. So I definitely agree with you there. So let's talk favorite song. Favorite song from ATL. Oh, man, that's a tough one. I'm less uh,
2: decided on that than my favorite outcast album, but... Uh, it's probably the title track. That was definitely the one, even when I was, like, younger and wasn't really all the way on board with the album. I always loved that song. Just, like, grabbing fishing fish and grits is such a great Southern thing to do. Um, <laughs> and then Andre whole versus this elaborate metaphor about, uh, how he's going to, like, prepare his child as a black person to survive in the world is, like, fantastic. Um, I mean, that's probably, like, one of the best, just, like, demonstrating incredible bars songs that I've experienced, um, yeah, probably do that
3: one. What about you? Same thing. A T Alien is the song. That one really does it for me. And there are so many tracks there that are great. Over the woods I like Jazzy Bell, but I like the remix with Babyface, the single version, the one that didn't make the album, um, Mainstream, Millennium, like just so many great songs there. But again, yeah. like I said, would you suggest this album for someone, for instance, if my co-host Carla Jean was looking for the Outcast album to start with, would you suggest AT Aliens or another entry?
2: Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, I think Stingoni is probably like the best introduction because it had, A, it has really big hits that everybody's familiar with, like Miss Jackson and So Fresh, So Clean. Mm-hmm. But it also has a couple of songs that sort of sound like old Outcasts too. And some really, really weird futuristic stuff at the end of the album. So you kind of get like the whole palette of their sound on that album, I think. A hey, Challenge is definitely more like you're already familiar with the group and sort of like want to dig in deeper, I think. I like, guess, I think overall it's probably like the least accessible Maybe Ottawa it is, but that's like not one you should be looking at early in um, your outcast career. We are not <laughs> talking
3: about that one at all, so yeah, we're good. So... <laughs> So let's talk about the history of Southern hip-hop in general. AT Aliens was such a groundbreaking work for Southern hip-hop artists, especially, like you said a little earlier, when you compare their debut to the growth that they showed on this album. Because the first album, you know, it was Cadillacs, and it was Get Up and Get Out, and, and things that were distinctly Southern with messages. But when we got to AT Aliens, we just crammed in so much creativity. And it took that Southern message to another plane with the alien metaphors and the spacey production, and it was a really groundbreaking work. When we look back at Southern hip hop, let's talk a little bit about its legacy and how do you think, personally, Southern hip hop has affected hip hop and pop culture in a greater sense in the past 20 years?
2: I um, mean, it's been huge. It's almost hard to overstate. I mean, you have. A group like Outkast obviously achieved like really incredible pop success a few years after this, which is like one level in which it was big. Um, but then you have people like Little Wayne and the Hot Boys who coined, coined, coined the term bling bling, um, which was a big phrase for a long time. Um, and you think about like the chopped and screwed sounds coming kind of out of Houston in the 90s. That's like sort of been reinterpreted in a lot of different ways over time. And obviously today like Future is one of the biggest artists I at of Atlanta where Outkast is from. Young Thug is like, hey, he describes himself as an alien a lot, which is something that OutKast was one of the first groups to do. So I think sort of this idea of, like, Southerners being weirdos, because OutKast, I guess guess both as being black men and guys from the South, they were sort of, like, forced to be outsiders anyway, and they sort of, like, ran with that all the way to, like, create that name OutKast and go for an unusual sound with every album. So I think that that sort of, like, mentality is very obviously sort of carries through to lots of other really huge acts, like Little Wayne is another person like that who just sort of like always seemed to be trying to do his own unique thing. Um, and not young fellow, like I said. And then there's sort of a certain mentality about Southern rap that's extremely experimental. Um, and Outkast is definitely one of the pioneers in making that um, accessible to a wide audience.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. I had never thought of that until now. A- AT Aliens was the first album that I know of that kind of linked the... Out of this world spacey effect with Southern rappers, because you hear, as you mentioned, Lil Wayne, his favorite saying back then was we are not the same. I am a Martian. And it really just kind of plays back to the Southern, quote unquote, outcast feeling that so many Southern rappers had. When you go back to the historic interview that Outkast had at Source Awards and they said the South has something to say, they felt right. so pulled away from the mainstream. And now these guys that you always saw as the Backwood Weirdos have a message for you, and they were just so happy to say that. And on that note, do you think Southern hip-hop gets the credit that it deserves?
2: It definitely now, It definitely now gets the... I guess like popularity credit, you know, like even here in New York, you're still hear a lot of Future and that kind of stuff on the radio or whatever, or like when you're out. But I still think maybe like not as much uh, critical credit, you know. Even somebody like Future, who's had a pretty like very true already. Like Dirty Sprite Two is a really interesting like nihilistic album, but I think some people just think about oh, it's just like he's driving about drugs and sex. But like. It looks, it's like the the on album is actually really interesting from a creative standpoint. So I think maybe there's still sort of a reticence to give some Southern rappers credit um, from an artistic perspective. But I do think that they have definitely like, sort of cracked the code into like, making hits and finding financial and commercial success.
3: I remember this was maybe 10 years ago when I lived in Louisville. I had some friends from New York, and we were discussing Outkast. This was maybe around Ottawa time. I can't remember. But I promise you that this conversation actually happened. But this brother told me that out, he got outcasts and they are the jokey rappers. And they just tell jokes and make you laugh. And I was like, have you ever listened wow. to an Outcast song ever in your life? So I was That's gonna great. ask you, um, do you get from New York? Do you feel like that the respect is there of the craft? I know you mentioned Future earlier. Anyone who knows and follows me knows that I am not a big Future fan. But there's still <laughs> plenty of other artists in the South who are moving in different directions other than the dirty sprite two sound. So, do you right. feel like up north that they really get it?
2: Um, I mean, definitely New York is definitely still at the end of the day a very New York centric scene. Um, which is kind of funny because like New York rappers for the most part are not really popping off to a great extent in 2016. Not at all. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. I feel like. With somebody, with a group like Outkast, like there is definitely they got they got so big with like Hey Yeah and those songs. That some people, sometimes people, forget about the complexity of ATL instance, or their older works. So I think that's sort of maybe an issue a lot of southern rappers can deal with, where they have sort of like one outlier song that kind of blows up and makes them really famous, but then people don't always want to go back and see sort of the complexity of the other things they've done or things they try to explain where they come from in their background. I mean, that's something they still deal with because, you know, media is based in New York. Even if, like, all the rappers aren't here, all the hip-hop writers are in New York, basically. So, it's still sort of a very New York-centric people who are, like, in the big radio are here. So, there's still a lot of people in the city who are kind of deciding, being tastemakers. So, I think you still have to play games with the New York scene, even if the New York rappers themselves are not necessarily that popular at the moment.
3: Yeah, excellent point. Who do you think on the southern scene now is carrying the banner that OutKast once held?
2: Hmm. Well, I would agree to hear that it's probably not feature even though he was in Dungeon Family, so he has, a, he has a tie to them, but it doesn't quite feel the same. Um, I mean, definitely Big Crit. I feel like he hasn't really been, like, that huge the last couple years, but from, like, 2011, 2014 or so, I definitely felt like he was doing, like, his, his music felt very, like, southern and raw, but also, like, uh, very detailed and colorful and specific. And some soulful of, like, really as well, definitely. Yeah. Um, so i definitely say him, um, I i to think about more recently, um, I don't know, I think Andre, uh, famously said he's a big Young Thug fan recently, that's kind of controversial, because, like, in some ways they're pretty dissimilar, but also, like, Young Thug has this sort of, like, androgynous, uh, ambiguity going on, which Andre had for a long time, um, and he also can be a super, like, dance and articulate a rapper when he wants to be. Sometimes he doesn't want to be. Any rap dance sings. So I think in some ways he kind of like is like the love below taken to like a bizarre extreme in some ways. So I see a little bit of Andre at least uh, when I was in the young sub. The- yes,
3: he is the prototype. So I see that. Yeah, <laughs> you see what I did there. Right,
2: so last right. question.
3: I'm going to hit you with the hardest question that you're going to get all day. Pick one. Andre 3000 or Big Boy. <sighs> I know unfair.
2: Okay, so Andre has, overall a better lyricist, and I think he has the more powerful lines going through their discography. But I probably haven't listened to Dave Boy's output. Big List had uh, two solo albums, and Speakerbox is basically 2 solo album. Um, it seems like he might have been more responsible for their actual sound of their music. So, and there's not really any way to know without knowing, you know the process of making HJ Owens, for instance, who is responsible. So I guess I would say from my public knowledge of observing them, I pick Andre. But I have a stingy suspicion that Big boys are important to the actual composition of the music is more important than any of us know. So it's Andre with an asterisk, I guess, is my answer.
3: I can't argue with that at all. Yes. Great answer. Thanks so much for the chat.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely, dude. Good talking
3: to you. Good. Talk to you soon.
2: The pitifulest thing out is a mob. That's what an army is a mob. They don't fight with courage that's born in them, but with courage that's borrowed from their mass and from their officers. So I'm pretty sure that the first time I read Huckleberry Finn was, it was like a children's illustrated version, so like much simpler than the real version. And that's probably around like age eight, eight or nine. I think I read Tom Sawyer at the same time. And they didn't really strike me as much. At that time, there's kind of like backwards adventures. I read lots of children's books like that. Yeah. Um, but then I had a, it was a signed reading when I was in ninth grade, um, the real version. And I remember it was like sort of like dramatically presented because um, I'm pretty sure we had to sign a waiver because there can be a lot of racial slurs in the book. So we had to like sign a thing. Our parents had to sign a thing saying it's okay for us to read it. So it was presented sort of in a very dramatic way, I remember. And then... But we, never, we had never read a book in school that had uh, curse words in it. So that's kind of interesting. Um, so it was already like kind of like prepped to be intrigued by it, I guess. And then it was definitely an intriguing read once I actually opened the book and read it for real.
0: Yeah. Well, so ninth grade is when I read To Kill a Mockingbird for the first time, which is, you know, another one of those seminal works that has such an important influence on so many of us. Um and there are some themes that overlap, but it's an interesting thing to me to think about these teenage years. They're so formative in so many ways. And so as you read this book, how did you react at that time to the content of it?
2: I think I was I was honestly the most struck by the writing style of it, because mm-hmm. I never, I guess I never saw a Mockingbird before then, but even still a Mockingbird feels more like an adult writing in a kid's voice, I guess. Right. Whereas Huck Finn is like seeped in the vernacular of Huckabry Finn and, you know, all the um, apostrophes at the end of words and all this stuff, and it's just so much in his voice, and I was just so struck by that as a kid. Like, I had, I mean, I've been trying to write since I was, like, form words since I was five or six years old and writing stories and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think at the time of, when I was, this was when I was, like, about 15, I guess, I was very into sort of, like, flowery, ornate writing and sort of proving that I could be a good writer by, like, using complex sentences and very, like, whatever, elaborate metaphors and this kind of stuff, and that's, like, what, how I wrote. And then I read this book and had this such powerful characters and such an important narrative, and it was from the perspective of, like, a barely literate kid. Um, and it was, like, deeply in this perspective. So that really struck me, and it really changed the way I approached my writing. Um, maybe I'm like, sort of, wanting to write things that are more like socially conscious or just more aware of the world around around us right now.
0: Yeah, well, and at least in the edition of the book that I have, it opens with a notice. It says, Persons attempting to find a motive in this narrative will be prosecuted. Persons attempting to find a moral and it will be banished. Persons attempting to find a plot and it will be shot. And that kind of made me laugh because, of course, the book is steeped in all of those things. It has a lot going on. And, uh, you know, Mark Twain really used some of the events throughout the book as a way to kind of hold a mirror up to society and say, I'm sorry, you think slavery, you think treating black people differently than the way you treat white people. Like, what's going on here? Um, But then, like you said, he does that through this very common vernacular, um, capturing the dialect of these people. And so there's so much depth to it, but it's also a really, it's a fun read.
2: Right. Yeah, I'm definitely, like, now i read many more books that sort of, like, pick that style and I understand the power of that approach a lot better. But at mm-hmm. the time when I read it, I just never really had been exposed to that Right. Kind of writing the, being used so effectively. Um, so definitely really changed my outlook on sort of like what well, makes good literature, not even just good literature, but good writing in general. Like I took lessons from that and changed my general approach to writing, not just in fiction, but you know, even the way I write now it's probably influenced by having read that book when I was fourteen or fifteen.
0: Right. I remember the first time that the idea of writing colloquially was introduced to me. Now I'm sorry to tell you it was when I was twenty two a whole lot older than when you read this book and it kind of clicked with you. Um, But, you know, as writers, I feel like sometimes we use that flowery language as a way to build ourselves up and writing in a voice that's just very of the people, I think, can be much more effective. So it's interesting to me how, you know, an experience from when you were about 14 has such a lasting effect.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, even in my uh, new job at The Ringer, the job is to sort of be, like, more conversational and, like, mm-hmm. clever and that kind of stuff versus the kind of writing I've done at uh, places in the past. Um, so, I mean, I just think even that that comes more naturally to me now, probably having, like, experienced that book. I sort of had this sort of, like, change in my perspective or my thought process about my writing um, after I read it. So. Yeah, Um, And I
0: wondered, um, you know, Twain uses satire so effectively, and I know that Bill Simmons' past projects can really touch on some of those elements as well, and so I did wonder if and how that shows up in your day-to-day work now.
2: Yeah, I think um, it sort of lasts the satirical thing, like, cover technology companies, and we're kind of at a time right now where they're sort of, like, the kingmakers of the world in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. And if you think about the way technology was covered, let's say until the last three or four years, there was sort of like a reverence for them or sort of a thought that they were generally good or generally benevolent. And now it's kind of switching to them, covering them like, okay, these are massive corporations who are going to do things in their own interest. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of my writing at the Ringer, um, I hope not know at least it'll go in with like more skepticism. You can even build that into like, making jokes about them like, taking your data, like, or, like, just, like, framing things to make the things that they do that are not necessarily good for you, making that sort of, like, a general part of the way that you present information about them versus mm-hmm. assuming that everything is going to be, like, for the betterment of society because, I mean, they have their own, they have their own interests. Um, right. But I do think that uh, Huckman, the book Friend did a good job of that because it was sort of, like, highlighting these issues um, and not necessarily, like, demonizing people when I say it, but it's sort of, like, being a lot more frank or direct about the way their interactions were affecting people in a negative way.
0: Right. Well, and I also have to ask, um, all three of the pieces that you chose to speak with us about today mm-hmm. deal a lot with race mm-hmm. and racial identity, and you're reading this book by a white man that, you know, has some parallels to all of this. In the context of Montgomery, Alabama. And of course, you know, we talked about the language. There's a lot of coarseness that made it controversial, and also a lot of the use of the N word. What effect did that have on you, both personally and from your choosing words in your career, dating even back to then? Uh, that's a
2: good question. Um... I felt like I was definitely surprised by the use of the N-word at the time, sort of at the start of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I guess as you realize that it's for the use of creating a specific world, um, a fictionalized version of the world that really existed at that time, then mm-hmm. I guess for me that like I doubted the use of it, or I don't know, I wasn't really like upset about it. I don't remember being upset about it, uh, or his use of it. Um, and I guess the other half of it is kind of trickier because a lot of times in your writing, especially for, like, writing for a publication, you're sort of, like, hamstrung by, like, what your publication deem[s] is appropriate, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I remember one time in college as a editor of the paper, someone had chalked uh, racial slurs across campus, and we had a front-page story uh, about it, and I wanted to use the N-word written out with, without abbreviation, without a censorship, Mm-hmm. I thought it was important for people to like see the word, and see the impact of it and sort of get the get the visual feeling you would have had if you saw it chalked on campus that day. So I did that and I had to sort of have an argument with like the advisor and the advertising manager, not an argument, it's kind of explaining why I did it, if I knew it would be controversial.
1: Right. But that was
2: definitely something where I like sort of saw that using the word could be powerful, um, written out in its entirety. So I don't know where that came necessarily from reading Huffman, but there was definitely some kind of connection there probably.
0: Right. Well, and even just a couple weeks ago, a friend was playing a song for me and saying, like, you know, I just love the song, I love the song. And I told her, at the risk of sounding like a prude, which I kind of am, um, the song just used the F word so much that all I could hear was the F word. And it's not that I na- necessarily shut down any openness to a track based on that but you know the use of language is important to me and when you use that like 15 times in the chorus of your song I don't feel like you're saying a whole lot and so it's fascinating to read something like um Huck Finn granted you know we're reading it more than 100 years after it was more than almost 200 years after it was written And, you know, so we can uh, apply our sort of, quote, unquote, politically correct standards, whatever, um, and argue about whether it would be appropriate to use that word or not. But, you know, like you just made the case that it was effective, it told the story. And to me, that's sort of the beauty of language. Words that may not be... I don't know. I would not personally choose to use that word, but I'm not writing about that time and place, and so it's really a fascinating sort of academic thing to contemplate.
2: Oh, I was gonna say one more thing about yeah. sort of vulgarity. I guess, like, I feel like um, it can be super effective in sort of placing you in a world or in someone's experience. Um, ATL, experiences is are relatively—I mean, not like the hip hop fans are not that vulgar, but I mean, they, they curse a lot on the album, but. Um, I, think, I think it helps you sort of understand their background and sort of the world which they experienced. And even when they are creating this new sort of alien world in the context of the album, it's still sort of like a reinterpretation of their part of Atlanta. So I think that the vulgarity actually uh, grounds the album in some ways.
0: Yeah. I love that art allows us to delve into someone else's experience and begin to at least attempt to understand someone's perspective and why they are who they are that's pretty powerful stuff definitely thanks again to victor luckerson for joining us for this week's episode of triple take if you want to keep up with what he's doing in life, you can follow him on Twitter at VLuck or go to his website, VicLuckerson. That's V-I-C-Luckerson.com. I'm Carla Jean Whitley, and you can follow me at InkstainedLife on most social media.
1: I'm John Hammentree, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at John Hammondtree and on Instagram at, at BirminghamHammontree.
3: And this is Edward Bowser. You can find me on Twitter at E-T-B-O-W-S-E-R. And, hey, if you enjoyed our conversation today about outcasts and music, you better go to soulandstereo.com. We can get that all the time.
0: I'm uh, sitting here with my two hip-hop gurus, and I love it. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. And, hey, write us a review. Leave us, you know, five stars. It sure helps us out. We'll talk to you next time.